We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number 55 of Lion Legacy. We are through Labor Day, and that is a signal that Penn State football is back, my friends. That's right. I can smell it in the air, Jared. I actually smelt it in the air in Happy Valley this past weekend. I know. which, Which is just a great experience. Yeah, how was it? It was perfect. I mean, the weather was gorgeous, right? I have not been to a warm weather football game in a long time. So it was nice to be outside in short sleeves. It's hard to beat a Penn State football weekend, right? Had a chance to connect with our good friend, Andy, who is a big podcast listener. He opened up his home to us, which was really nice, beautiful house very clean house as well so five stars on the airbnb rating even though he's doesn't put his house on airbnb (laughs) met up with with Kristen as well who went to pit but she is a huge fan of this podcast so shout out to Kristen. great to see her and uh, yeah just had a great time with uh, with ali my wife was there with us second this was her second penn state football game there you go so she she loves it she actually said to me, which, you know, it's a, just a sign that I really did marry the right woman. We're driving home and she goes, you know, if we live closer, I'd go to every f- home football game. And I was Whoa. like, yes, she's a keeper, Jer. She's a keeper, right? She's a <laughs> keeper for sure. Yeah, it was a great time. My sister and, and her family were there, too. So it was fun to uh, tailgate and Got to meet up with Crystal and Brad. Just a great time, right? You connect with people that you haven't seen in a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also got that victory, too. Want to know, right? That's right. You got to be one to know every week. Want to know every week. And uh, you and I and John and Andy, we're getting ready for that Ohio State trip this year, too. There you go. For the, uh, the folks keeping track at home, our away game this year, yeah, we're going to be in Columbus in October. So, you know, we'll speak about that trip after after it takes place, but we're looking forward to it. We're going to the enemy territory. I don't know. Hope those uh, Buckeye fans are nice to us. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope. I think the main thing is we come away with a victory. Our little squad is is undefeated at away games the past few years, so hoping we keep the streak alive. That's right. But uh, speaking of sports, we're talking a different sport other than football tonight. Yeah. Hey, we're talking about golf. Right, switch it up a little bit, and we'll get to that. The reason why, Jared, you you don't play much, do you? I don't. I haven't played it in a, quite some time. And man, when I do go out there, balls are being sprayed. Man, watch out! Even if you're yeah. on the other hole, right, the Jason hole, you got to be careful with me. Yeah, and well, it makes two of us. I mean, I don't think I played in a couple of years. Yeah, I like it. You know, it just it takes up a bunch of time. I'm not very good, so you know, if I was a good player. And I could get through a round pretty swiftly. You know, I think I would like, you know, of course you would like it more if you're good, but 
I just I don't want to go out there and spend five hours. It's just too long. What about you know? Top Golf? Top, I'm no, a that's fan. different. That's different. I mean, yeah, it is different. To, Top Golf. I mean, you know, come on. That's you're standing there with your friends and you know having chicken wings and drinking some beer and rip it the, and rip it. Just you know, hit the ball as far as you can. I mean, that's a good time. Mini golf. I mean, come on, you can't go wrong with mini golf. We were when we were on vacation. <laughs> I took my daughter mini golfing. It was great. You hit the ball through the little thing. You get a hole in one. You move on to the next one. It takes you like half an hour. It's awesome. But no, real golf is tough. Arguably one of the hardest sports to play. I, I definitely appreciate when you watch a good golfer. You know, people that we know that are solid golfers. I mean, just respect. It, it, it's really, it's not easy. So the reason why we're talking golf, by the way, we should get there, right? So we spoke with Ryan Hager. He is a graduate of the Professional Golf Management program at Penn State. We haven't spoken with any of those yet here, Jared, on Lion Legacy. So he works at the Plainfield Country Club in Edison, New Jersey. He's a director of instruction. He's played a ton of golf, right? We were talking golf the whole time, right? Cool background. We learned about that program at Penn State, which is really interesting, unlike any other. We talk about coaching, teaching, as far as golf goes. We talk about the game, the industry. There's a lot to it, right? We cover a pretty wide variety here, Jared, with Ryan. So the great conversation was really cool. Kind of makes me want to go out and play sometime soon. Although, you know, I don't really want to go out and play golf in the cold, but that's just me. It is a fun game. So, hey, Jared, get your clubs, get your ball, get your tees, right? We're going to yell four here on Lion Legacy with Ryan Hager. All right. Let's welcome Ryan Hager, a 2016 graduate with a degree in PGA golf management. Ryan is the director of instruction at Plainfield Country Club in Edison, New Jersey. He was recently placed on Golf Digest Best Young Teachers in America and named Teacher of the Year by New Jersey PGA. And as some of you golf enthusiasts aren't in the Edison area, don't worry. Ryan also teaches virtually. We're excited to have you on, Ryan, and talk about a game that so many people love to play, but also brings its fair share of frustration. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, guys. Thanks, uh, Ross and Jared, for having me. Hey, Ryan, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. As someone who enjoys the game, or shall I say, I try to enjoy the game, it's great to speak with you. So we're going to go way back in the vault here. What's your earliest golf memory? I suppose golf period memory would be going to a local driving range, sort of a, just a public driving range near my house where I grew up in, in Rochester, New York. It's called Big Oak and didn't have clubs, but they had a pretty large arsenal of little kid rental clubs and things like that. Just remember my dad encouraging myself and my, I have two younger brothers. One was not yet old enough to try playing golf. He brought my middle brother and I there to just kind of whack it around and, and see if uh, test the water, see if we liked it at all. I must've been 10 and I don't remember liking it very much, obviously frustrating to whiff and top it and things along those lines, just like every other kid that age. And then uh, golf course memory. The first one would have been up in Stowe, Vermont, I believe on a vacation trip out that way. We used to go up there for the summer in August and my dad brought us out to play nine holes of golf and it was a place called the farm and i just remember throwing an absolute tantrum just hated it and i was completely <laughs> miserable the entire time and my dad god bless him just kind of was patient with us and, and uh, never forced it on us but grew to like it as i got a little bit older 
I'm sure there's some adults out there that throw a tantrum from time to time. So, you know, I think that's not just specific to kids, right? Certainly. Yeah. I'm probably (laughs) guilty of getting a little more upset on the course than I'd like. I think it's the competitiveness for most people that no one likes being bad at things. And when, you know, I don't generally play for no reason. I'm always gambling with my friends or whatever. So whether it's for $5 or bragging rights, I suppose it, it just gets under your skin. Yeah, hundred percent. So, all right, so we'll keep the story going here. So then, you know, you started, you know, at an early age, a fairly early age, right? And your dad was trying to get you into the game, and right. So then, at some point, you know, you really started to enjoy it. But talk us through that. How did your passion for the game develop? So I was a decent hockey player growing up. As I said, Rochester, New York. It's cold up up that way. Not a professional baseball team or basketball team for hundreds of miles i guess you'd have to come down close to where i live now to you know find a passionate fan base for that but the bills and the sabers are huge up that way so i clung to hockey and then as a i needed a summer sport and hockey beats you up pretty bad so i found golf quite a bit after the story i just told i i wouldn't say that i was a true golfer until like eighth grade and into freshman year, I started to kind of get the hang of it a bit more, found passion for the game. And I would say took to it and improved really fast. I'm biased as I am, you know, I still play hockey. I'm a hockey player. I'm biased and I think it's probably the easiest sport to transition from, you know, the skill sets transfer pretty well. And so I picked it up relatively fast. And I think once you uh, kind of get that itch, you, it's hard to lose it. Through high school, I was playing those two sports a lot. They didn't really overlap, and it made it easy to shut down one and start up the other when that time of year came around. So, yeah, I, I kind of like early high school really started to find passion for it. My brother started to get a little older, and my dad kind of had a perfect foursome, the three, the three of us, and my dad would play a lot. Talk about tantrums we would just be screaming at each other and angry but you know few and far between when, whenever that would happen so there's still a lot of fun and was there a defining moment or point or memory where this kind of clicked and you said wow i think i, I want to make this a career there there was i was working at my a couple friends of mine and I decided to try to start our own caddy program at a country club near where we lived. And while I was there, just kind of was doing it to make some cash and have a place to play nine holes, you know, as we wrapped up work for the day. I met a guy who I found out was an intern in the golf shop. And I just remember my eyes sort of bugging out thinking you can intern in golf. What does that even what does that even mean? And he was from the area and was a student at Penn State. And he told me about this golf management major that whenever I tell people about it, they go, I didn't know that existed. And neither did I. And sort of just one thing led to another. And I scheduled a visit. My mom had just retired this year. She was a professor at a school up there called the Rochester Institute of Technology. And I could have gone there for free. I had planned to do that with a major in accounting. And then this golf thing came on my radar. I didn't know anything about Penn State. I barely knew the logo. I wasn't like a big college sports fan 
And I was like, I guess we'll go check this place out. And I was just, you know, blown away. How could you not be? So, you know, getting to check out the campus and meet the faculty and a few of the students in the golf management program quickly opened my eyes to what a truly amazing university could kind of be like. Not that RIT is not great, but I haven't been to a college campus that's rivaled Penn State yet. So I was blown away and there's some nice selling points there in that program that won me over right away. And then it ended up where Penn State was the only school I ended up applying to. And so I, I was hooked from sort of finding that out and golf quickly became much more than a hobby and something I did in the off season. That's for sure. Yeah, we're going to get into your Penn State experience certainly later in the show, but you know, curious what this certification process is like to become a PGA instructor and professional. Well, so I guess there's a, sort of two answers, maybe three answers to that. I would say that most golf courses try their best to hire PGA professionals. There's a little bit of a slide going on with numbers of club pros and things like that. So at, nowadays you can kind of get jobs at a lot of courses without being a PGA professional. I think that's kind of being reworked a little bit to encourage that, that it happens more, but you can go through a certification kind of post graduate. If you decide to try golf as a, almost like a second career where you become an apprentice, you work at a golf course. And then at, over the course of three years doing book work and tests and sort of home studies and things like that, you get a certification saying that you're a PGA professional. And then you can also, as a student, go to, I believe it's 16 or 17 different universities across the country where you enroll in a PGA golf management program, Penn State obviously being one of them. And over the course of your four years at school, you are completing your typical, you know, gen eds and other courses that are required in your major, as well as material sort of administered by the PGA of America. Most of that is, is written book work that you have to read and study so that you can pass tests in things like merchandising and golf cart fleet management. Believe it or not, that's a class. <laughs> you have to take a class in turf management so that you're familiar with agronomy a little bit, tournament operations. And then there's a couple of classes on teaching golf because it's fairly complicated. So there's more than one semester that you have to take classes and tests on, on teaching the game. And then you handle all that while you are on campus throughout the year. And then after every spring semester, you have a required internship that you have to do. So I completed five internships when I was at school. That is the minimum. So you basically work every summer and you actually do one additional semester as an intern where you typically your senior year fall semester, you are off campus completing a seven month internship. And so you complete all of that. The hardest part for a lot of students is the playing ability test where you have to play 36 holes in one day and shoot a target score or better depending on the course that you're playing. So I played mine on the white course. And I believe at the time you had to shoot a pair of 77s or some combination that added up to what is that 154 so you know you could shoot 80 74 
270, you know, whatever combination gets you to that score or lower. Do you have to have a certain handicap going in or maintain a handicap at, at some point? As, as far as I know, the the rules the same as when I applied, and that, it honestly might be a Penn State rule, and then Methodist University might have a different one. I actually don't know for sure, but Penn State they required that you enter the program as a 10 handicap or better. There's a lot of player development programs that are supposed to help you leave as a better golfer than when you showed up. For the most part, I would say that that happens. It's got to be very high percentile. People leave school better than they arrive. Right. So wait, hang on. For the people that are less familiar with golf, just explain a handicap in layman's terms for us. In layman's terms, a handicap is a number assigned to you that is essentially the average number of strokes above par that it takes you to complete 18 holes of golf. So if par is a 72 and you're an eight handicap on average, you should shoot 80 or so. Got it. You know, a 20 handicap would shoot about 92 or so. That's meant to be the average. So there's going to, there's going to be better rounds and worse rounds, but yeah. Safe to say that I would not be getting into Penn State program (laughs) or any program in the country. Not yet. Not yet. Yes. Just need some lessons. <laughs> Very true. So that's a good segue, right? We're going to talk. Let's. We're going to talk more about you as an instructor, right? So every coach has a certain style, right? Methodology to help their students improve. I imagine you have yours. So tell us, what's your approach when you're working with a golf student? How do you approach teaching them? Someone actually asked me this today and I didn't know what to say. I still don't. I don't really have per se a a methodology. I believe that the three of us are all different. We're different heights, different builds, different flexibilities, different injuries, different restrictions. And so I would say that I don't teach people as a whole the same. I try my best to apply my understanding of the human anatomy and the laws of physics and geometry and how that kind of makes the ball, the golf ball go certain places. And you mash all that together and it should spit out some decent option for kind of every individual. I would say that I'm a pretty good critical thinker and I have decent instincts for all of that. So I don't really have, oh, I do this, that, and the other thing. I believe that everyone needs to swing this certain way. I don't believe that. I actually firmly believe the opposite. And so I think I I would say that I have a pretty good understanding of how things can match up based on your predisposed tendencies. and, And I try my best to help people accomplish their personal goals in golf. How hard is it, though, to change someone's swing, right? Someone potentially has been swinging that way 10, 15, 20 years, you know, muscle memory. And now you're asking someone to tweak their swing a little bit and probably easier to said than done, right? It's extremely hard, I would say. I mean, I can get someone to look different standing in front of me doing drills and things like that, but getting someone's driver swing to be different on the first tee of the golf course that they play every day is that's a very tall task it's i would say incredibly hard there's some crazy sort of tidbit about tiger woods during one or all of his swing transformations i don't know how much golf you guys watch or follow but tiger famously 
changed drastically changed instructors and technique three three to four different times during his career which is just Almost. wild to think about right i mean dude, he was golfer, he right? was yeah at the time he did it the first time around he was the best golfer in the world and it was there was like the next person was like in a different stratosphere mm. what he was doing he was so dominant and just demolishing everybody and while he was playing that way he decided he wanted to change a bunch of stuff about his swing and allegedly i may this might just be one of those things that as it's trickled down to me i've gotten some blown out of proportion thing but it basically took him 18 months hitting over a thousand balls like every day trying to work through these adjustments and played poorly for those 18 months until he more or less came out the other side as you know comfortable enough that he could dominate again for someone that talented and amazing to take two years basically to to get comfortable yeah it takes a lot for the average person to to change but it's doable it's possible a lot of it's mental Th think about that conceptually though right i mean that's like why even if it's not broke why fix it right it's like, you know i'm thinking of an analogy you know shohei otani changing the way he swings a baseball bat or steph curry changing the way he shoots a basketball right it just it, i don't know i'd love to understand the psychology of that but i mean that's but I, it worked out for him right <laughs> i think so much of it just comes down to your drive to become perfect and he just saw you know things in his swing that maybe aesthetically bugged him or found that there was, you know, something missing. It's more of a, a competition against himself. He's obviously better than everyone else, but I think, you know, no one is satisfied at that level. And yeah. Yeah. I would have had a very hard time saying, yes, let's change <laughs> that stuff if I was working yeah. with Tiger, but yeah, you know, he's a hard, hard guy to say no to also. I want to also touch, you know, you talked about swing correction or changing people's stance, for example, but we also know that golf is a pretty big mental game. You know, how do you advise your students on the mental aspect? I think one of the more challenging things is taking what you do on the range to the golf course. I often joke that hitting balls on the range and playing golf might as well be two different sports. As far as I am aware, they're the only two sports where you practice and play on different fields. I don't know of other ones where you do that. You might go work with a pitching coach in an indoor facility, but for the most part, you're throwing baseballs on a baseball diamond. But the fact that golf is practiced on a perfect lie and you know, you go on a course and you're standing with one foot in a bunker and the other foot out of the bunker and you've got to hit it 170 yards over a tree. You can't really practice that. And so I think a, a big part of it, I would say to keep it as simple as possible for those listening is to remember that you can have the best technique ever, but when you play golf, you have to play golf and not golf swing. And I think, I think that's probably like at the top of the list of the mental advice that I give. You have to play the game. You have to try to get the ball in the hole and no one really cares what your swing looks like while you try to do that. So as long as you kind of understand how to handle scenarios and things like that, you know, I think for the most part, you have to keep in the back of your head that you know, the objective is to get the ball in the hole and not overly, you know, focus on your technique and, 
things like that. Well, one thing I always love about the men- mental aspect of the game, you know, and, and I play very infrequently. If I get out to a golf course once a summer, I'm doing well. But it's that one great shot that you have, right? You know, whether it's a drive that's just perfect, right, to 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 negate the other ten that I shank, right? That's the ones that they say, "quote keep you coming back." It's that one great drive, or you know, you you're, for somebody that's not very good, you get a par, right? Or even you know, heaven forbid, a birdie. And again, that's what keeps you coming back. So I think it's also that, you know, those glimmers of hope that, that would keep you coming back to the game and enjoying it and, you know, trying to get better. It's such a game of misses. You just want to miss it a little bit better than the last time you played. I don't think anybody's out there thinking they can win the game of golf. I think everyone just, you know, they relish in the moments where they hit it really great. And if they, hit their bad ones a little bit better than the bad ones from the day before or the year before or whatever, you see some sense of improvement and that's motivating. And, and that's probably why I think a lot of people fall in love with it. Yeah, for sure. So again, we're going to continue with the coaching element here with the latest technology, you help people virtually, right? Like you actually have this app right on your site called Skillist. Is that right? Skillist? That's correct. Yes. And so you can work with a student that is, I don't know, one of your one of your guys that's on vacation or somebody that doesn't even live in New Jersey. So tell us about that. How's that work? Yeah, I actually work with uh, people in Australia. There you go. Kind of cool. It's been pretty cool as a tool for me to kind of market myself a little bit, try to grow the my audience and, and brand and whatnot. And then now that whole software has advanced so much that I run it for all of my in-person lessons too. And so it it helps with follow-up. It's made me accessible, I suppose, worldwide. And just with golf exploding, the whole social media world exploding, I would say demand is pretty high. And that's definitely helped me be more accessible to uh, my students and golfers that that do care to work with me and things like that. So yeah, technology has been improving, obviously, and is just so present now in, in golf and golf instruction and Golf media, it's definitely made my job easier. It's made my job busier, but those are all certainly good things. And people just submit a video, upload a video, and then you'll send them a video back of like demoing the drill or the change that you want people to make. Is that right? More or less, that's the format I try to keep it to. I don't do, you know, we're on a Zoom right now. I don't really do FaceTime Zoom lessons because so much of my day is in-person you know, one-on-one, more or less 60-minute lessons. And so taking time to basically do the same thing, but in front of my phone, I don't have the time to do that. So yes, it works as a, basically a video exchange. I get a couple of videos from a person as well as notes about sort of what, what's been going on while they're playing, what they want to accomplish. I then have ways of sort of marking up the screen so that you can more clearly see how you're moving. I have a video library with 400 different PGA tour player clips where I can compare you to someone who's doing things as well as you could possibly do them so that you can more clearly sort of see where you might be falling short or what the true problem is in in your swing. And then it makes it a little, it makes the visual understanding go through the roof. And then on top of that analysis, I'll send along, like you said, a sort of a demonstration of prescribed drills that I would suggest the person work on. And so the, 
I think that format works really well. I've gotten a lot of good feedback. It it's typically not like overwhelming and, you know, too much for people to, to handle. They can still be pretty simple and very effective. Very cool. Love that. So uh, now we're going to talk a little bit more about your students here. So I'm sure you've developed many bonds with your students and have enjoyed watching them improve. Of course, as you mentioned a little bit ago, tell us about a couple of highlights that you can think of from your coaching career. Are there any, you know, small wins, big wins, things that you can remember that, you know, with a student where, you know, they accomplished something and you were just, you know, a little extra proud. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I've now gotten to start working with some really good players. Not that those are the only ones that are gratifying, certainly, but when, you know, when you're playing your way into college and things like that, it was uh, certainly pretty rewarding when a, a handful of guys and girls that I work with were able to secure scholarships. I don't know that any one of the dozen or so that have done that is more special to me than another, but I would say on separate from that, I've had four of the girls that I work with qualify for USGA events. Most notably the U S women's amateur was a pretty cool one up at Westchester country club. A couple of years ago, I was able to drive over there and be on site and kind of walk some practice rounds and watch them play and to see, you know, some of the girls I work with play on a stage like that was, that was a proud moment for sure. That's great. I also want to talk about your Instagram following, which is quite impressive. I think it's just above 78,000 followers. Ryan Hager underscore PGA. I'll also put it in the show notes. You put out a lot of great golf content, tips. For anyone outside, this is not just specific to golf, but for anyone, regardless of their profession, what's some advice that you can share about creating a personal brand on social media? I would say that consistency, which can be broken down into a few different meanings is a big one. I was not all that consistent with that platform until really COVID hit. And then all of a sudden I had a lot of time on my hands. And uh, during the first three months or so of COVID, I put a lot of work into sort of rebranding the thing and also coming up with content. And I think like posting frequency and trying to engage with people on a fairly daily basis, certainly weekly, but daily or every other day, I think is a big one. So for me, it's all about golf instruction. I love and am passionate about golf instruction. So adding time to my week to, you know, create essentially free content to hopefully help people is not a super strenuous thing. I see value in it and I'm motivated by that. And so if you're doing something that you truly care about, hopefully something maybe that's helping people, I think, I think you'll be motivated to have that sort of consistency and quality to it. I am fortunate that my girlfriend is a very good graphic designer. And so she coded and created an entire website for me based around my business. And I would say that being able to link a website and sort of a business page to, to your social media accounts and things like that, I have found to be very lucrative from a business standpoint, but that's definitely helped a lot with growth as well. And then I guess, lastly, for those potentially thinking about doing something along these lines. I think trying to, and it's so hard, but trying to come up with a unique twist on simple yet helpful types of 
you know, for me, golf drills and information like that. If it was a outdoor photography, Instagram, like as creatively as you can picture, you know, taking photographs and posting things of things that people like, but in ways that people haven't seen before. I think, I think that has been sort of my model and it's worked for me. Some great advice there for anyone that's looking to venture off into the world of social media and create their brand there. On the same advice lines or perspective, I would say, hypothetically, and I assume you're a PGA golf fan of the sport. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Okay. I don't get to watch as much golf as I'd like. <laughs> Just but, wanted to make uh, yes. sure in case yep. you were like, nope, don't watch the professionals. But <laughs> Hypothetically, right, if the PGA commissioner called you and said, Ryan, how do you think we can improve the game from a player and fan perspective? What do you think you would say? It's a great question. I have many opinions on this. I would say that I actually was speaking to my girlfriend about coming on here, and that was one of the questions that, that stood out. And Every time there's a major, specifically majors, and I think they're the most watched, which is why this is the most frustrating, except for the masters in order to watch a full day of coverage, you have to stream on three different platforms every two to three hours. And if you don't have a subscription to that platform, you are just out of luck. God forbid that's the two hours when Tiger Woods is like on the back nine and you know, you miss his round. I, that drives me crazy. And I think one of the biggest, from a fan perspective, changes that need to be made is a continuity to the coverage, the way that the masters does it. Now they own that week in April and just like they have more money than they know what to do with. So I suppose some of it comes down to you know, if it's losing them some revenue by not having Peacock, you know, broadcasting the thing, they don't care. And so they're, they do everything they can to make the, you know, fan experience better. I would say just consult with them, just hire those guys to, <laughs> you know, help you with that. But I think that's a big one. I think I enjoy watching golf on TV more than I do going to the events just because you don't miss the action. And so from my perspective as a TV golf viewer, that's a really big one. I think from a player perspective, I think there's got to be a point where it's so hot that wearing shorts would be a better choice than forcing mm -hmm. these guys to wear pants. I think if anyone's seen the two Lucas Glover wins this summer, one of them, it was like 110 degrees and humid and he just, his pants were a mess. It just looked awful and you know i think uh, i think shorts probably would have been a nice thing for those guys that week um, is that rule in effect just from a tradition standpoint or is there any as far as i know yeah um okay. i absolutely yes no i don't think there's any reason except for that's just the way it, all, it always has been that might be the only part of the dress code that's the same as it's always been like they used to have to wear like pea coats and wool vests and like ties, neckties, you know, to play golf. So that's certainly a thing that's evolved over history, but pants has, pants have always been there. Where do you stand on the, like having a cart, right? That would also speed up play as well. I would imagine. Do you have any thoughts on that instead of walking the entire 18 with a caddy? 
I would not be in favor of that. I think golf is jokingly like, is golf a sport? You know, people love to sort of, when I was in high school anyways, you got a little, you know, you kind of got made fun of for that here and there. If you take these guys and put them in golf carts, it's hard to say that they're quite as athletic doing that as when they have to walk the rounds of golf. So I don't even think it would really speed up pace of play that much. I think I think a lot of those problems are more so once you are at your ball, all the thinking and factoring and, and guesstimating of things like that and making decisions. I think that's where the pace issues come from. Not you so inst- much from how long it takes you to walk from the tee box to your ball. Would you institute like a, and I don't know if it's being discussed, like a, a shot clock similar to the pitch clock that you have in they, these days? They already have that. They don't really adhere to it that much, but they give out slow play penalties frequently enough that it can scare you into playing faster for sure. That's already kind of happening. They don't have the shot clock on the TV screen for viewers to see. Maybe that could be a thing, but they time everybody. Yeah. They have walking rules officials. They'll tell guys like, Hey, you're slow. You are officially on the clock. Like they were already, they're on the clock because they were on the clock already. And then once you're notified, you basically have a couple holes to pick up the pace before you get a penalty. So Barring, you know, some crazy lost ball took you three minutes to find it in a bush or something like that. If you walk up, find your ball and take too long, you already get assessed a penalty. With how much money they're playing for now, it's just, it's easy to overthink everything and, you know, take a little extra time to kind of weigh all the different variables. Ryan, we'll keep this going here. We're going to talk a little bit more about the state of the industry. You've heard about some of the golf courses around the country. I understand some of them are not always as financially stable as others. You may have some that are closing out there. However, we seem to have this surge in what we'll call alternative golf experiences, right? I.e. Top Golf, which I've been to. It's a lot of fun. But what are your thoughts here, right? On on just the whole state of the industry and the direction it's going. I think from a profession standpoint, it's hurting it the worst. I think I think the labor situations and the staff situations at a lot of these courses is deterring people from staying club pros and becoming club pros. We could have a second and a third podcast just on that. I could talk for hours on sort of the issues that are there. I do think that golf, the sport is in a very good place. I think, I think a lot of the courses that are closing are probably closing for a good reason. I think through the 90s during the golf, last golf boom when Tiger was coming out, there were like 300, 300? something like three to 600 new courses being built every year through the 90s. So there's just too many. It's sad when, you know, maybe a guy's local club is closing and he used to play there five days a week. I feel bad for those people, but there's too many golf courses. So we do need some of them to close. And I don't think that means the sport's, you know, trending in the wrong direction or anything like that. And then the alternative ways to play and experience the game, I think, are fantastic. I think um, I think Topgolf's a great example. I think a lot of the indoor golf that exists now is also really great. Being able to play golf in a simulator and things like that can be a great way to learn the game. It can be a very time-effective way to play. I think that's the biggest constraint for you know, people getting into golf or people that already play is that 
if you have a fast golf experience playing 18 holes and you live near the course that you play, maybe 20 minutes or so, it's like a six to seven hour door to door experience. Like from when you pull out of your driveway to when you come mm -hmm. home. So having faster ways to experience golf is I think a great thing. Top golf is it's like bowling, but for golf, like it, you show up, you're all in the same booth. You all hit from the same place over and over again. The scoring's fun. It's very inclusive. You don't have to dress fancy and you can eat and drink while you do it. I think that's great. And I think, I think the simulator thing is exactly like that too, where you can play a real round of golf. You don't have to worry about pace of play. You can do it with your friends. There's scoring and there's also game improvement incentives and things like that. So I think that's great. I'm probably not going to be like the Asian sort of cultures that are doing this where I, I want to say in Asia, there's an equal number of people that, and it's like hundreds of millions that play a lot of golf. And then there are hundreds of millions of people that have never been on a golf course, but play tons of simulator golf. Like they've never played real wow. golf. There's an equal number that have wow. exclusively played real golf and exclusively played simulator golf. That's how, it, you know, <laughs> significant the indoor golf experience is over there. So I, I have to imagine that we're growing rapidly. I don't know that it'll quite get to, you know, get to those numbers, but maybe it will. Who knows? I second the time element thing. When I tried to get more into golf years ago, right? I guess it was when my first kid was born and it's like to be out of the house. And I'm again, I'm not very good. So for me to be, you know, play a five hour round, drive there and like, it's just too much time, right? Yeah. Well, I guess how about, you know, how many of these courses now, let's say you belong, let's say you go to a public course, you know, are they flexible to allow you to play in nine holes? Are there certain times you can do that? Or is it, what's the option there? Yeah, I suppose it depends on the course. There might be places that maybe just aren't interested in selling a nine hole round because it's less revenue. But I, as far as I know, most courses are open to that. Sort of depends on the course layout. There are courses where the ninth hole is the farthest point from where you parked your car. And so it doesn't really make any sense to play nine at places like that. But assuming you're at a typical course, the ninth hole comes back to the clubhouse. And I wouldn't think maybe during some peak hours and things like that, you can't, but most places would certainly allow you to play nine holes. And I think, you know, maybe future golf course designs will have three hole loops that all come back to the clubhouse in some way, shape or form. So you could play three holes, six holes, nine holes, 12 holes, 15 holes, 18 holes. And like the round could take as long as you want it to take, you know, most people could play three holes if it's not very busy in 25 minutes and then head out. And I think, I think, you know, we have the ability to start being creative with things like that's for sure. I like that idea. Bring back more of these uh, chipping pots as I knew it or pitch and putt. There you go. Yeah. Executive courses, par three courses, pitch yeah. and putts, all that stuff. Yeah. I'm all about that. All right. So now that's yeah, again, right. another good segue. You're teeing up all the great segues here, Ryan. You like what I did there? Jared, that was a good one. Anyway, we're going to talk more about golf courses, right? So obviously you're partial to Plainfield, which by the way, let me just sidebar for a second. I mentioned to my dad, if he's listening, hi dad, that we were talking with you. He played at Plainfield some years ago and he loved it. He said, I think he was in an outing there. He just said, spoke very highly of like the professionalism of all the caddies. They really took you along. They helped you out a beautiful course. Like he couldn't you know, speak highly enough. So, you know, I know he appreciates a good course there. 
But aside from Plainfield, what's your second favorite course to play at? And what are some of the other ones that for our golfers that are listening out there, what are on, what's on the bucket list? Yeah, Plainfield is amazing. I'm a very lucky guy getting to call that my office. It's it's fantastic. I would say that I'm actually playing my favorite course in the U.S. tomorrow. It's called National Golf Links of America. It's out in the east end of Long Island. It's amazing. I'm very fortunate to have a network of people that are kind enough to invite me to these nice places. And so I've got a nice day to look forward to there. That's probably like my favorite kind of in the U.S. My favorite golf I've ever played, I could rattle off a lot of courses in Scotland that I would I tried to move to Scotland. I tried to get a job there. No one returned my email. So I I love Scottish golf. I love Lynx golf, Muirfield in Scotland, St. Andrews, the old course. They're, that's that's my favorite, favorite. That's the best. But favorite in the U.S. that I can drive two hours to get to would definitely be where I'm going tomorrow. That's fantastic. Nice. Another bucket list question. Dream foursome. Oh. I, I think you have to put Tiger Woods in there. Tiger Woods, Josh Allen. Josh uh, Allen, the quarterback. Yes, I'm a huge Bills fan. Okay. Is uh, he a big golfer? He's a huge golfer too, so that, that's a good one. That would be. All right, that makes sense. I figured yeah. as much, but you know, I just want to make sure. Yeah, this is hard. Wayne Gretzky. I, I hear Gretzky's son-in-law is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, he's decent. He's decent. Dustin Johnson, Dustin right? Johnson, yeah. Dustin Johnson. Yeah. He's I actually didn't realize that until a couple years ago. I'm reading that, you know, he married Gretzky's daughter. I'm like, oh, okay. That, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very athletic family. I'd say so. <laughs> well, let's talk a little Penn State now. We're going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Reminisce about your time in Happy Valley. Remember to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your Penn State golf apparel and so Ryan, you touched on this first one a little bit earlier about how the uh, the Penn State golf management re- required you to have a certain number of internships, which I imagine prepared you pretty well for the early part of your career and professional life. So elaborate on that a little bit more. Tell us about the transition from when the time you graduated and as you got into your career, how did you see that that direct benefit from your time at Penn State and the internships you had to take on? I don't know anybody that had more work experience exiting college in the field that they were hoping to go into than myself and all of my friends that I graduated with. That's the easy answer for sure was from a career life experience perspective, you just, you, it's like drinking from a fire hose every summer where you're just like in the thick of it every day. I think, I think that would be the biggest one. I would say that specifically in that program, the faculty and the PGA golf management major are tremendously caring and hardworking and uh, they do such a great job with student relations and things like that that they really help you with job placement career advice they help you get through your other classes and things like that and so you get this just awesome support system where i think you you learn how important support is they kind of help you find mentors and you know help you realize you know just the kind of life skills you need to succeed in the workforce. So, I mean, it's a pretty unique one. I don't know that every major is is like requiring students to 
go out there and, you know, get jobs in your field all four years. I, I know that pretty much everywhere probably requires it once, maybe twice or something like that. But just from day one, you get a lot of that and that major. It's pretty great. Were you also close with the men and women on the varsity golf team as well? I was close with a small handful of them. A friend of mine was dating a girl that was on the women's team. But funny enough, we didn't have a great relationship with the, the golf team. There was sort of a almost a wall built between the two of us just with the sort of the coaching philosophy that was going on there where we were basically turned away from trying to walk onto the team and he really didn't have an opportunity or a, a way of communicating with the coach about things like that. So it was very separate, unfortunately. I, it, I don't think it's quite like that these days, but it, it kind of went on that way for a little while. Toughest question of the podcast, favorite Penn State memory? I'm going to give you two, even though you asked for one. So I told you I was not a Penn State fan. I wasn't really a college sports fan. I went to the school and visited, loved it so much that I applied. And then, I mean, my first day on campus as a freshman was like my first, you know, first time really being there for any reason, except for my, my visit there. <clears throat> and I did not really understand that college football was like a big thing, like anywhere. I just didn't grow up with it. We had a couple D3 schools where I grew up went to a game once, thought it was lame, never went back. We actually, I think, lost to Ohio University or whatever you call that place, the green school. Is it OU uh, uh, in yeah, Ohio? Yeah. I think yeah. we lost the first game that I went to against them. And they weren't, like, very good. And we played FAU, I think, the second game of my freshman year. And they were really good, and they beat us, too. So I think we went 0-2 my freshman year, with, if I'm remembering that correctly. And they were the greatest sporting experiences I had ever <laughs> been to. I remember like today, I still get chills thinking about the chills that I got just watching the team come out of the tunnel for the first time. And I wasn't a fan, but I was now a student there. I'm like, I guess I like this now. And then I walked in and my mind was just complete. I just remember my mind being blown. Like, how did I not know that this was like how this was? And I just never really got into college football at all. And, and now I'm obviously a big Penn State fan. Love the team. But that was like a eye-opening, crazy experience for me that I'll certainly never forget. And the other one is, is actually it's with Penn State students and friends and that faculty from the PGM program. But it was not at Penn State. We This was one of the selling points, and I'll try to tell this quickly. But the PGM program organizes a spring break trip every year. And 25 to 30 students sign up and go on this trip together. And it's like a golf trip that also includes like a, a little history report, book report that you have to do. There's some other classes that you go to prior to the spring break trip. And you get three credits for going on this spring break trip just to play golf with your friends. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and every other year they do that trip to Scotland and you get to play the best courses in Scotland in a Ryder Cup format with 25 of your best friends when you're 22 years old. And you just gallivant around St. Andrews, Scotland, pub crawling and playing golf. And that is probably my favorite Penn State memory. Unfortunately, it was not. It was not in State College, but that's a very fond, 
fun one for me. It was my senior year. Yeah. I mean, you play some unbelievable courses. It's your senior year spring break and it was just insane. It was awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, people at any age, if they're a golfer would enjoy that, right? Going with your friends over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic trip. All right. So Ryan, let's go back in time, right? If you could visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman, right? You, again, you kind of touched on this coming to state college from Rochester, New York. What advice would you share with yourself at that point? I think this is an easy one. It somewhat sounds like I have regret. I don't have regret regret. I don't think I'd be where I am today. Had I not gone on the path I went on and I'm very satisfied with early career success and life experience and whatnot, but I would have told myself to do at least one, if not all of my internships as far as I possibly could have gone from home. My first one, I went back, stayed with my parents and worked in Rochester. And then my version of venturing out was coming to Plainfield Country Club, which was five hours away from home. And that felt like a huge leap. And I just wish I, you know, I went to California or Oregon or Scotland or, you know, something like that and seen a little bit more of the country, the world traveled a little bit more. I tried doing a little bit of that after college, but it was kind of, that's an opportunity that I feel I probably let slip away from me a a smidge. I try to, I think I kind of like the comfort of being closest to home. Who doesn't? A little too much though. I wish I had ventured out a little bit more. I think that's fair advice. And then how do you feel most connected to the university today? Are you in touch with folks as part of the professional golf management program or, or do you have a chance to speak with Penn State students going through that program or, you know, what do you have there? Yeah, I guess given the sort of trajectory I've been on, there's been a couple opportunities within that major to somewhat give back. They do a monthly meeting series where all there's roughly 120 to 130 students in that program all of them get together in a big classroom they have a guest speaker come in they do some other housekeeping sort of meeting type things to just get all the students on the same page about things and then someone speaks about a topic pertaining to golf in some way shape or form in the industry so i've gotten to go back and do that a couple of times And then annually, they organize a mentorship program where an alumni gets paired with a student and you're supposed to be kind of an open line of communication to to help with job placement things, with just general career advice. I mean, I would openly talk to anybody if they just needed someone to to talk to about anxiety they were having. So you kind of just serve as a postgraduate sort of professional mentor to them. So I've been involved with that program since I graduated and have kind of had a student to help out every year, which has been great. Very cool. I got two follow-ups here, right? Two, these are a little bit of softball questions, but just, I'm curious. Number one, brag a little bit. What's your best round? 66. That's my lowest lowest score. Do you remember what, when and where that was? One was at Baltusrol Golf Club in 2018. That yeah. was the year I worked there. The other was in April of this year in a tournament at a course called Wachung Valley near here. Nice. Both 66. Both were 66. Fantastic. Congratulations. Six, six under on those two courses. Thanks. All right. Yeah. And the other one, have you ever had a hole in one? 
I have, I call it two holes in one. I do have two holes in one. I will Ooh, stand by wow. one. Wow. One was on a, in a tournament on a golf course in Rochester, surrounded by a par four, five real golf course. The other one was a year ago on a par three course that was, it was 90 yards to the hole on a five hole par three course that's connected to a place that we were playing that we just went to we basically took our shoes off and walked around this place and just drank a few beers and I teed it up between the T markers and hit it in the hole in one shot. And I call that a hole in one, but All right. my, my friends say that doesn't count. Yeah. There's a lot of rules that. around that. So, <laughs> Hey, in my book, we'll give it to you. Yeah. So I count that one, but so technically two, but yes, I definitely have one legit one that uh, my parents have a thing framed in their basement <laughs> from, nice. from that one when I was a kid. Yeah. Nice. What a, a great conversation, certainly. What a cool gig you got, number one. But as you were talking, you know, I think there's a great lesson here as well around developing yourself outside of the quote-unquote traditional job, right? You've got your coaching in person at playing fields, but then you've kind of branched out, right, on skill list and doing a lot of virtual coaching all the way to Australia. And then this Instagram following I continue to be amazed by 78,000 followers producing this great content. I think there's just some really key lessons out there for not only alumni, but students that are going into any group. I think so too. And I think if there are a lot of students listening to this, I think the, you know, social media is addicting and it's probably not the best for just daily time killing, but as far as separating yourself and using it as a professional tool one it's free and that's great if you're just coming out of college and two your audience can get really big fairly fast these days and i think the more you can spread your message the better that is for things like your brand and promotion and i think now more than ever that's so important for early success in any career so if you're able to i think build that platform a little bit and, and just spread the word. I think uh, the price is right. And it definitely helps to drive business when you're early in your career, trying to sort of make a name for yourself. It helped me a ton. And it was sort of the perfect timing where that all just kind of started. So I was of the minority of people out there doing this thing. Now it seems like it's, it's kind of what everyone's doing, but it helped me get a, a little bit of a head start on that stuff. So right place at the right time. Yeah, great advice there, and appreciate you uh, spending some time with us tonight. We always end the podcast with, we are. And state. Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.